0: If leadership was easy, anyone could do it. And if anyone could do it, we wouldn't need leaders. When you and I are in positions of power, places of decision-making, our choices impact other people's lives and income, how naive can we be to think that we know how to do this without God's help, without His encouragement? Prayer is a desperate dependence upon God to make the right decision.
2: Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, and we have come to the end of our journey through Nehemiah and the leadership process. In this episode, Michael will be reviewing the 18 attributes that we've discussed throughout the series. But as a reminder, we have this as an easy, at a glance PDF on our website. So if you go to MichaelInContext.com forward slash leadership process, you'll find several free resources and downloads, including this PDF. Looking at the 18 attributes, all the resources there are in an effort to help you reflect upon your own leadership process and where you might need to press in and develop more. As I mentioned in the last episode, we have two fun announcements. One, if you live in Nashville, Michael has started a Tuesday night Bible study, and we would love to have you. All the details are on our website, michaelincontext.com, and also you can find there information about Michael going to Israel in 2019. If you've listened to him at all, you've heard him talk about how it is God's will for your life. I think he's kind of joking, but more serious when he says that, and we would love to have you join him on that tour. Again, it's in spring of 2019, and you can find all of the information at the direct link michaelincontext.com forward slash Israel. There are the dates, the cost, itinerary, and more. Well, while this episode is the finale of season three, we will be back early next year with season four. Michael will be teaching from the text of first Peter, and we will be having conversations with a variety of folks about what it looks like to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You're going to hear some phenomenal stories that will challenge you encourage you inspire you and if you're anything like michael or me will probably make you cry so be on the lookout for that in early 2018. without further ado let's wrap up nehemiah and the leadership process
0: defining leadership has become a religion if you were to visit a brick and mortar bookstore you'd find innumerable books on leadership with all sorts of subtitles. If you were to survey online Christian leadership books, you would be dizzy with the titles. Every author has a slant, a perspective, a take on leadership. Now, I've read extensively on the subject for almost 35 years. And after a while, when you start reading and researching leadership, like any subject, you begin to see trends, theories, Models that show up again and again. Now, they might be repackaged and nuanced a little bit, but at the end of the day, there are key principles that will always emerge. Listen to some of the titles I've seen and read in recent years. Spiritual Leadership. Jesus, CEO. The Leadership Challenge. Strategies for Taking Charge. The Leadership Principles of Attila the Hun. Credibility. Leadership is an art, leadership jazz, (laughs) the making of a leader, the power of vision, 21 irrefutable laws of leadership, seven habits of highly successful people. And I believe there was an eighth habit book that came out a little later. Leadership maximizers, lead without power, why leaders can't lead. And as you go through this list and many more, It does become dizzy, and sometimes they seem to counterbalance each other. Let me go back to the beginning of what I'm suggesting is a working definition of leadership. Remember, it's a process. So, just for a review, leadership is the process of influencing people toward godly principles and practices through biblical wisdom, as demonstrated in Attitude, Activity, and Ability. We mentioned in the earlier broadcast, E.V. Hill's quip, if you think you're a leader and no one is following, you're just going for a walk. So the process, the challenge of leadership is not going to go away. In fact, arguably, it may be more difficult now than ever. Let me suggest three factors, and these are just my observations. You can improve on them. I'm sure there are better ways of looking at it. But let me suggest three factors of why leadership is in trouble today. Number one, there's a leadership vacuum. Organizations, businesses, nonprofits, startups, they're all looking for leaders, for men and women who can lead an area or an organization. It's very hard to find people that want to lead. Secondly, the public, and I would just say people's general disregard of leadership. Our culture's grown to not trust leaders, We are disrespectful to leaders, we are suspicious of them, we dismiss them out of hand. I was talking with a national leader not long ago who explained to me the interaction with audiences and how it's changed in the past three decades. And not to harp on different age groups, but younger men and women today simply dismiss or disagree with a leader without any thought of being disrespectful. A third reason, a third factor that seems to be a problem in leadership is people don't want to do it. People simply don't want to lead. We don't want to step into that role, maybe because they see what leaders endure. And it's been my observation, people are very ready to complain, but very unwilling to lead. And those who want to lead think they can lead by just saying something. Long ago, someone shared with me, just because you say something doesn't mean you've done something. You might be familiar with James Mishner's novel, The Bridges of Tokori. It was made into a film and the closing line of the movie spoken by Rear Admiral George Tarrant. Where do we get such men? They leave this ship and they do their job. Then they must find this speck lost somewhere on the sea. And when they find it, they have to land on its pitching deck. Where do we get such men? Friends of mine who have been naval pilots will tell you about the enormous challenge of not simply landing on that deck, but often taking off on that flight deck. Well, perhaps one angle of leadership that is seldom vocalized is the sacrifice that it requires. For a man or a woman to step up and say they want to be a leader is going to demand more than you can imagine. So continuing to think about the leadership process as tied to the book of Nehemiah, let's think about it in these terms. Focusing on what a leader does, who a leader is, the abilities of the leader, and how he or she casts vision. These are broad stroke areas, but I want to review much of what we've already talked about, but perhaps from a little different angle in our study on Nehemiah. Let me go back to the beginning that good leaders identified with the problem. You remember in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 3, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We all admire and respect leaders who get things done, but there is something that identifies us closer to a leader when he or she owns the problem when he goes on to say i and my father's house have sinned we have acted corruptly he owns it i was in a meeting not long ago where a businessman was sharing about his organization one area that was really struggling they brought in an outside consultant and that outside consultant began very simply asking them questions about their goals and objectives my friend said he put his head in his hands and shook his head and said, I'm the problem. <laughs> I'm the one who has been leading this area of my company well. It takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of humility to identify with the problem. And my belief is people will follow a leader like that far more quickly than a leader who never admits he or she has made a mistake. Again, we reviewed that leaders are servants Also in chapter 1, verse 8, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And just as a reminder, they could only worship God the way he designed and intended in the place where he chose his name to dwell. Nehemiah refers back to Moses, of course, the most revered Jew of all. He was the one who spoke to God like a man face to face. He refers to Israel as servants, and he refers to himself as a servant. The Hebrew word for servant was slave or bond or someone who was owned and, of course, the worshiper sees this as the idea as a priest was a minister, which is the same word, a servant of a tabernacle, a servant of a temple complex, a servant of God. Self-appointed leaders rarely see themselves as servants. The entitlement disease has affected many people. And as we looked in prior studies, Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So how do you demonstrate servanthood? How do you identify with people? And these are all part of the leadership process. Well, in Nehemiah 2 verse 8, we read about the letter that he wrote to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, to give him timber and beams to make these gates. This tells us that good leaders know their time, they know their skills, And they know when they need other people who have resources they don't have. I find it amazing. Nehemiah was probably as great an organizer, as great an administrator, as he was a leader. Not all of us possess those gifts. But he also knew that there was a time to ask. And he prayerfully considered that before the king when he asked for his aid. But be careful about self-promotion. Be careful about asking for your own benefit. The clarity in Nehemiah's question was he wanted to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And too often I think we're consumed with our passion, our vision, our hopes, our dreams, our ideas, our lives. And after a while that becomes laborsome to the ears of our friends. How is it helping others? How is it showing some sacrificial intent on our part? Are we leading for others' good, and amassing those around us who can help us. We also discussed in the leadership process that we're going to face opposition. As much as I dislike talking about it, as much as I dislike it in my own life, we're going to face pushback, we're going to be ridiculed, perhaps even mocked and intimidated and threatened. Office politics a la Dilbert will go on forever. It does not mean that every opposition we face is wrong it does mean we have to have our head about us to know that you will be opposed. Not everyone is going to like you. I learned in my 20s and 30s from an older leader, work so that not everyone will like you, but conduct yourself so that everyone will respect you. I'll never forget this defining moment in my life. We had made a hard decision as leaders in the church that I served in the northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. And, of course, as the teaching pastor, I had the privilege of communicating that decision. And there were many people that were upset with the elders and with me. And they would stand in line after service to share their particular opinion about the decision we made. And one very powerful individual, if memory serves, he was at least a two-star general, came up to me. And without mincing any words, he told me how wrong I was and dressed me down. And then he looked at me and he said, I disagree with you, but I respect you for your position. And he walked away. And I had to laugh internally going, well, that was kind of a wire brushing with a little bit of sugar on the spoon. You you know, you made a tough decision, but I respect you for doing it. Lead and work, not so that people will like you, but conduct yourself in a manner so that they will respect you. It's tempting sometimes to push too hard or to acquiesce too quickly. And as leaders facing opposition, I can't tell you where that fulcrum is. I can't tell you where that time is you push hard in, or you take a little step back. You always consider the source. You always get good counsel. You always take time and pray. But at some point, you have to act, knowing you're going to have opposition. One question that clarifies me is, does this serve a greater good? What's the 30,000 elevation impact of this thing? When we make this change or decision or hire or fire someone, what does that do for the overall organization? Does the pain of the decision outweigh the good of the potential outcome? And those are decisions that are hard and can lead to lonely times. We also thought through the leadership process of having a clearly defined task. Again, from Nehemiah chapter 2, so I came to Jerusalem, I was there three days, I rose at night, I had a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And then he tells a story of how he basically surveyed the land, surveyed the wall to see the desolation that the city was in. And then he says, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. To me, this is simply strategic planning. Uh, Nehemiah had to put boots on the ground. He had to go see what the task was like. You can't do this from a distance. There's no substitution for first-hand inspection. And as we have a greater clarity on that, then we're able to clearly define the task we're asking people to do. It's still true today. We all know the acronym MBWA, Management by Walking Around. It's a lost art. It's of great value, whether your company's small, your church is small, medium, large, whether you just work with a few people, going to see where they work, going to their area, and you will learn about what you're asking them to as a leader in a much better context of what their worldview is. Christ himself stated in Luke fourteen twenty-eight that you better know the cost of building the tower before you start doing it. Have you clearly defined the task? Have you clearly defined the problem? If you're a pleaser or a pushover, you won't be able to do it because people always push back even when that task is clearly defined. The more crisp and clear we are in the objective, the easier it is for people to align and to follow the leader and the vision. And of course, thinking about the leadership process, we have to remember vision is important. Again, Nehemiah 2.17, I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so that we are no longer a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build in that short record, we reminded the time Nehemiah spent fasting and praying, his opportunity to talk to Artaxerxes, what he asked Artaxerxes for, for permission, for resources, for time away, all that folded together. So if you're the little guy out in the world and a leader's asking you to do big things and you hear him or her say something like, look, we've got a plan. We've got resources. I need you to help me. That vision compels us. That vision pulls us. The objective's clear. The task was clear. And so we're more motivated to say, I'll follow that person. I'm happy to do that. Massive numbers of books, tapes, and articles written about vision. And I don't want to overstate the case because I think sometimes leaders create a vision in their own mind that's harder to sell to other people. Altruism is a big thing today. If we're doing something that's stopping slavery or sex trafficking or helping with clean water, for some reason those issues resonate with a lot of people today. Helping orphans, helping adoption, helping those who are struggling with disease, compassion is a huge part of our vocabulary today. Those are all fine well and good, but is this a clear biblical vision is the question. Come, let us rebuild occurs at least three times in the first person plural pronoun. Let us do it so that we may no longer be a reproach. We, first person plural. And then he's essentially saying, God's already helped me. God's paved the way. He's provided me an opportunity. He's provided me permission. He's provided me resources. So clearly casting a vision is critical, but... Just be sure it aligns with glorifying God, not just some good task that we're about. In the leadership process, we also need the right workers. In chapter 3, the 32 verses there, we read about the assignments that were parallel along the wall. This wasn't just a delegation. It wasn't just an assignment. This was ownership. Nehemiah knew uh, a person is highly motivated to do something that immediately has implications for him or her. Every leader hates it when someone says, we can't do that, and every leader loves it when someone says, you know, that's tough, that's a tall order, but I think we can do it. I think sometimes leaders shirk from asking people to work a little harder, to push them, to evaluate them, because of our own insecurities or our own fear of hurting someone's feelings. We've all heard the expression, we have to have the right people on and off the bus And I'd probably rank this as one of the hardest parts of leadership that has one of the most significant impacts. It's hard to move people on and off, but it may have the greatest impact for your organization, for your ministry. And Nehemiah understood this when he enlisted these workers. And you remember the story unfolded. They faced opposition. And then we have the phrase, the sword and the trowel. They were being defensive, but also keeping the work in front of them getting the job done the leadership process encourages us to pray and we saw seven or more times specific prayers from nehemiah i think it's notable the prayers are recorded in the bible it shows his desperate dependence upon god he can't do it all by himself even though he's a phenomenal leader now prayer of course is a wide-ranging topic but i find prayer and leadership are connected at a very critical level When you and I are in positions of power, places of decision-making, our choices impact other people's lives and income, how naive can we be to think that we know how to do this without God's help, without his encouragement? Prayer is a desperate dependence upon God to make the right decision. Well, the process obviously includes men and women of integrity. Nehemiah chapter 5, the first 19 verses were all about Nehemiah showing his own integrity. Nehemiah could only contend with this conflict because of his integrity. What I find remarkable, far beyond dealing with the issue, is that he took the opportunity to reveal his own money, the use of his own resources, that while he had things available to him as a governor, I'm suggesting he used his own pocket. You know, financial integrity reveals character. I've been in too many situations where people who are in leadership are poor with their finances or they don't really care that much about the organization's finances. It's in the background. It's white noise over there. It's, it's just what it is. And they'll spend and use money without consideration that we're stewards of that money. Nehemiah, in a sense, opened the books. He showed them his tax returns. He showed them his charitable kiffings. how he used what he had even when he had the right to take advantage of far more than he utilized. Leaders, even when it's within our rights, can choose to limit our freedoms to help a greater cause. That's integrity. Nothing reveals integrity like the way we use our money, at least from a human point of view. What you say and what you do with your money. Does a poor money manager have a role in leadership? I'll leave that for you to debate. I don't think so. I think a person who can't be trusted with money, who's poor as a money manager, has no business being a leader because it lacks integrity. A person who works well with his or her finances, I can trust them. There was the old axiom, I'd trust this man with my wife and my checkbook. In other words, this person has the integrity of someone that I could give possessions that are precious to me and money that is important to me to someone, and that person will deal with it wisely. Years ago, back when I was in my 20s, I asked the church treasurer how he could do that, looking at all these people's checks and knowing how much money that they gave to the church. Of course, I never saw any of that. I didn't want to see that in those days. His answer was surprising to me. He said, you know, when people give a lot of money, that's wonderful. And God has kept me From thinking about them any differently. But where I had trouble and had to pray was when I saw how little some people gave knowing their lifestyles. It was quite a lesson for a 20-something pastor to understand, wow, this is how people use their money. How's your integrity? Finances are just one indication. Moral, ethical, your word, are you trustworthy? Do you follow through? It's the whole deal. Integrity is indivisible by one. It's who you are as a leader. Well, the leadership process involves many, many more things. Good and godly leaders can bring about dramatic change, whether it's in the political realm, military realm, a teaching profession, academic, research, medical, technology, even in ministry and missions. And many of you are already in positions where you lead. There may be all kinds of obstacles. You may be inundated by bureaucracy. You may have gotten tired and exhausted under the load. Maybe you've gotten buried in the belief that it doesn't matter. A few years back, a very influential pastor friend of mine was removed uh, in his 60s from a church he had served for nearly 30 years. I followed up and called him and talked to him about what had happened. And without disparaging people of the church, He said to me in a moment of transparency, Michael, I just can't change anymore. At first it made me sad, and then as I've gotten into my 60s, I understand what he means. But I also have to ask and answer the question, is God through with using you? Is he through with using me? Again, James Stokesbury's comment, leadership remains the most baffling of arts. As long as we do not know exactly what makes men get up out of a hole in the ground and go forward and face death at a word from another man, then leadership will remain one of the highest and most elusive of all qualities. It will remain an art. A couple of final comments. Number one, if leadership was easy, anyone can do it. And if anyone can do it, we wouldn't need leaders. Whether it's in the home, in the office, in your work world, in your classroom, in your practice, wherever you are, it's a man or a woman who has the courage to be clear, to point the right direction, to have the wisdom to say, what about this? How do we do this? Now, the way we lead, the manner we lead, how we lead, that's a changing, moving target. And understanding how we help people in this process to influence people toward a good direction has probably become far more art than skill. And the last thing I want to say is leadership can be lonely. Now, I know the rules of speech and homiletics and motivational sermons, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to end on a downer, but leadership can be lonely. We talked about it with Stephen Mansfield. We looked at it in Nehemiah's life. It was Ernest Shackleton's famous quote that said, loneliness is the penalty of leadership. But let me end that with a twist. There's a place, a sacred place, when you know you're doing the right thing in the right way and you're alone in that stance, that you're alone with God. God is on your side. As long as we're doing the right thing in the right way, at the right time, to go with God, to follow his word, to be moored to the scripture, moored to his teaching, are we making disciples of all ethnos, are we sharing Christ with those that don't know him? Are we leading people to mature in their relationship with Christ? Or being a good father, a good wife, a good husband, a good mother, a good worker in the field, a good student? Are we serving Christ? And there's an exquisite loneliness there that actually can be a very sweet place. John Gardner wrote, Societies are renewed if they are renewed by individuals who believe in something, care about something, and are willing to take a stand for something. At the end of the day, leadership is a person that's willing to raise his or her hand and say, I'll help, I'll lead, I'll take the initiative, I'll make the call, I'll get involved, I'll roll up my sleeves, I'll help, I'll serve, I'll come alongside. Leadership is an extraordinary privilege and extraordinarily demanding. If we go back to the beginning, Nehemiah was a cupbearer, to the king. He had an opportunity and he took it. He prayed, he seized upon the opportunity, he asked for God's blessing, and God enabled him to complete a project in 52 days that is mind boggling. In some respects, building a wall is easy. Changing lives takes time. Nehemiah had the courage, the tenacity, and the plumb line to come back to his people and say, Are we living the way God intended? What a great way to be used. At the end of the day, at the end of our career, at the end of our life, two things will last forever. God's word and God's people. Let me challenge you where you are. Is your life pushing along? Is it nudging along? Is it encouraging people? God's word and God's people. Those are the things that last forever. And where you and I spend our time, is, in no small way, a leadership decision. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.